Our passage this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. The passage is also printed on page 9 of your worship guide. Please stand for the reading of God's word. As you stand, I would remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans 9, 1 to 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chrissy. It appears that I owe my children a large number of both hermit crabs and Barbie dolls. And that stems from two failed promises that I made when they were young. So the first one was many years ago, we went on a family vacation to the beach, and my children gathered a large number of hermit crabs in one of those sand buckets and brought it to where we were staying, and they said, Dad, can we take these home? And I said, no, we cannot take them home. They need to stay here. And like many children will do, but dad, until finally I said, all right, leave them here. When we get home, we can go to that fish place and we'll get some hermit crabs. They're still waiting. (laughs) And the other incident was we had a yard sale and uh, must have been one of those days I was in the get rid of everything mood. And so we gathered up all their Barbies in this box, a whole huge box full of them. And apparently, my memory's a little more foggy on this one. Uh, apparently, a lady came, and I probably sold the whole box to her for a quarter. And I had told the kids, you get rid of them all, we can buy new ones. And again, they're still waiting. Now, that was wrong. That was wrong for me to tell my children that I would do something and then not do it. It was wrong for me not to keep my promise. In essence, to lie. And I have confessed that sin to my children. I've apologized to them. I wish that 
I either had followed through on my promise, or really, I wish I had never made those promises. But we can probably all think of someone that we know who did not keep his promise. A parent, a friend, a boss. We can probably all think of someone, even ourselves, who failed to keep his word. But not one of us can think of a single time when the word of God failed. Now why is that? Why do we fail so often to keep our word, but God never fails to keep his word? Well, one of the main reasons is because God is not like us. In the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 23, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So God always keeps his word. But in Romans 9, we see the Israelites wondering, is this really true? Does God really keep his word? You see, to the Israelites, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, it looked like, it felt like, God had not kept his promise. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. They knew God had made a covenant with their people, with their father Abraham, to be their God and they would be his people. But now so many of them were not his people. They had rejected God. They had rejected his son, Jesus Christ. And now Paul is in anguish over the state of their relationship with God. They are accursed and cut off from Christ. And he is doing everything that he can to see that they will be reconciled to God, that they will be saved from their sin. We looked at that last week. But now this week, he's he's telling us this because he wants to make sure that everyone knows that God's word has not, that it will not fail, that God has kept, he is keeping, and he will keep his promise to Israel and to us, his people, Today And this promise includes making people his children. So yes, we can indeed trust him, and we have every reason to thank him today. So Paul wants us to know that the word of God has not failed. So first, he clarifies for us what the word of God is, what the actual promise was. And then he gives us two examples from the Old Testament to help us understand this promise to help us see both God's power and his purpose in fulfilling that promise. So Paul begins in verse 6 in the section we're looking at this morning, and he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here Paul is going to clarify for us what the word, what the promise of God is. Some will say that God has not kept his word, but they often will either misquote him or misunderstand him. And Paul won't allow that. So first, he wants to make sure we know what it is that God has actually said. In verses 6 through 8, Paul essentially says the same thing in three different ways. He essentially says this, God never promised to save all of ethnic Israel. It was always a chosen portion. So in verse 6, he says it like this, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. 
And then in verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying there is a smaller subsection of true spiritual Israel within the broader sphere of national or ethnic Israel. So not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. Or not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But instead there are actually true children of Abraham among, or true true children of God who are among Abraham's children. And then he says it this way, these true children and true Israel are children of God by the promise of God. They're not merely children of flesh. They're not simply children of Abraham by physical birth. So Paul says the same thing in three different ways to clarify for us the promise of God, to show how the word of God has not failed. He wants us to know that God's promise of salvation was always to a select, chosen, promised group of people. It was never to every individual Israelite. So God's promise of salvation was always to a group of true Israelites within Israel. And an important note here, this true Israel also always included those who were not physically descended from Abraham. Those who were not Israelites by birth. That is, included Gentiles who were outside of that category. And beloved, that's great news for us. Because most, if not all of us here today, are not Israelites by birth. We are Gentiles. So it's great news that God has always included us in his promises. So Paul says the word of God has not failed because it only applies to these chosen people. These are the ones who are saved. These are the ones who are the children of God, the children of promise. So you know that children's song that... If you've grown up in the church or maybe went to VBS as a child, that children's song that you learn, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. You you know that song? Many of you know that song? It's probably not the best song to sing at VBS because really, how do you know it's true when you're singing with a bunch of children from all over the neighborhood that you don't know. You may be leading children who do not know God and singing something that's not true of them. And not only because most of them are probably not Israelites, they're probably not Jewish by birth, so they can't claim Abraham as their father in that way, but many of them may not even be covenant children, not yet children of God by faith. And the scriptures do not teach universalism. So we do not believe that. That means that every single person will be saved. But that simple song may sound like we teach that, depending on how you explain it, on the context of it. Now, you might think, Troy, come on now, you're getting old. You're a church curmudgeon. And I know that I led kids in singing that song in my younger days. And actually, there, there are ways in which it's a great song for VBS because it has all those motions. It gets the kids up and active. They're energetic, and they're singing. They're enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. So in that way, it's a fitting song. But it doesn't really fit with Romans chapter 9. Father Abraham had many sons. But actually, some of his sons aren't really his sons. 
and some who aren't his sons are his sons. So I'll put that into a song, and then we'll, we'll sing that one. But Paul makes it simple here in Galatians 3, where he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So not a son of Abraham, a child of God, a promise. You're not a son of Abraham. You're not a child of God, not a child of promise, if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how are we to think of this today? I would encourage you to ask yourselves this very day, what are you trusting in for your salvation? I would ask each one of you, from the youngest to the oldest, to consider that question. What are you trusting in to make yourself a child of God? Or what are you trusting in for the assurance of God's love? Are you trusting in Christ alone? In Christ alone. For it is those who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation who are the true children of Abraham. This is the promise that God has made. This is why Paul will say the word of God has not failed. So another way we might think about this is today is this. You are not a Christian simply because you're a member of a church. You're not a Christian simply because your parents are Christians. Now, both of those things are great blessings from God. It is a great blessing to grow up in a Christian home where you are taught the gospel. You are taught about God, your creator, your king, your savior. It's a great blessing to be a member of the church where you can come together and hear the gospel proclaimed week after week after week. And you see the fellowship that God's people enjoy with one another. But that is not a guarantee that you are a believer. And that is not what makes you a child of God. Beloved, you are a Christian. You are a child of promise, a true child of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to know that Jesus died for your sins. It's to know that the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins is through the blood of Jesus, through the death of Jesus in your place. And it's also to know that when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was his loud amen. He accepted the death of Jesus in your place. And what is the result? This, this drains your account of all its sin, drains it empty, and in its place fills it up with the overflowing, full, perfect righteousness of Jesus. Praise God. Amen. To believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. To confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord is to yield to him, to love him as your creator, your king, and your savior. You belong to him, and so you worship him, and you obey him. So Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he clarifies that word, that promise, by showing us it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Beloved, God's promise creates his children, his family. There would be no children of God, not a single one, apart from the gracious promise of God. But because God has made a covenant, because he has made a promise to make a people for himself, he is now watching over his word to perform it. 
That's a phrase directly from the scriptures. God watches over his word. He doesn't leave it in the hands of men, dangling there as if it was uncertain. He, the all-powerful, almighty God, watches over his word to perform it. And so his word has not, it will not, it cannot fail. God has kept, he is keeping, and he will keep his promise to Israel and to all his people today, including you who trust in Jesus. That is good news for us. So now Paul gives us two examples from the Old Testament. God's word hasn't failed. Let me help you understand it. Let me help you understand God's promise, and let me help you see his power and his purpose in it. In verses 9 through 13. The first example is from Abraham and Sarah. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn back to Genesis 18 or just listen as we work our way through this. But in Romans 9, verse 9, Abraham says, this is what the promise said. Abraham, about this time, next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So the people Paul was writing to, they would have known God has made this covenant. He made this promise to Abraham. First in Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. In Genesis chapter 15, a few chapters later, Abraham has this promise, you're going to be a great nation, but still, in Genesis 15, he doesn't even have one child yet. And so he talks with God, he says, Lord, you've made me this promise, but you haven't given me even a single offspring. And so God reaffirms his promise to him, and he says to Abraham, your very own son will be your heir. And he takes Abraham outside, and he says, Abraham, look toward the heavens. And number the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham is encouraged. Yes, God's made me a promise. He goes on living. Genesis chapter 16, Abraham still has no children. And time is passing. His wife Sarah is getting old. It's getting to be the point where she's not going to be able to have children anymore. And so what do they do? They try to make God's promise happen on their own. So Sarah says, Abraham, take my servant Hagar, the Egyptian, and she can be like a surrogate for us. Have a child with her. And so he does, and they have a son, and they name him Ishmael. But this is not the child of promise. This is the child of the flesh. This is the child of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief. They tried to be in control rather than trust and wait on God, on his timing, on his plan, on his promise. We might think of it this way. Those of us who've been enjoying the Pilgrim's Progress Sunday School class. and that moment, Abraham and Sarah left the narrow path. They took that bypath meadow. A way that seemed easier. That seemed more realistic. And in that way, when they did that, they encountered, in a sense, the giant of despair. It led to sin and suffering and pain. But you know, it's not only Abraham and Sarah who do this, is it? We, God's people, still do the same thing today. How often do we do this, beloved? Part of our sanctification, the process of God making us more like his son, Jesus, is learning to wait. And isn't that what hopeful, encouraged Christian to do? Christian, wait, be patient, trust in the Lord. But that can be so hard. You know, we see someone straying, someone that we love straying, and and we want to, to see them follow Christ, and so we try to intervene in ways that forces that change, that controls it, that makes it happen, but we can't do it. Or perhaps we have a longing for something that we don't yet have. Maybe it's a longing to be married, 
And we're waiting and waiting and God is not fulfilling that promise. And maybe we pursue that in ways that don't please the Lord. We marry an unbeliever or we seek to enjoy the benefits and blessings of a covenant marriage without being married. Or perhaps we're walking with someone who is in deep suffering and they're not experiencing the comfort and the healing of God as soon as we would like them to. And we can become impatient. We can become harsh. Or maybe it's our own suffering that God is not relieving in the way that we want, in the time that we want, and so we seek an escape apart from God and the things of this world. Well, beloved, God was merciful to Abraham and Sarah, and God is merciful to us. Their sin did not ruin God's plan, and it did not separate them from his love. And it doesn't for us either. But God came, God came to them in Genesis chapter 18 and he says to them, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah's listening behind the tent. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The scriptures tell us the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now what does that mean? It means she's too old to have a child. It's, humanly speaking, it's too late it's physically impossible for them to have children. So Sarah laughs. She laughs to herself and she says, after I am worn out and after Abraham is old, am I going to have this pleasure? And the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then here's the part that Paul quotes God says, at the appointed time, he says it again, Abraham, Sarah, at the appointed time, the appointed time, my time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And she did, just as God said. But what's the point of this example? The promise would be fulfilled through Isaac, not Ishmael. The child of promise not the child of the flesh. And God's promise is not due to or dependent on human ability in any way whatsoever. That's the point of this first example. God's promise has nothing to do with you or your ability. It's totally owing to the power of God. So only God can make his promise, his word, come to pass. Abraham and Sarah couldn't make it happen. They tried. It led to disaster. You cannot make it happen. Only God can make it happen. Beloved, the only reason there are any children of God is due to the promise and supernatural power of God. That's the first example. Now, Paul recognizes some might hear that example and, and they might say, well, wait a minute. Hagar, she's an Egyptian. She's not an Israelite. She wasn't Abraham's true wife. And so Ishmael, he, Ishmael, he's not a true Jew all the way. So, so that's why it was Isaac and not Ishmael. It had to do something in them. Now, that, argue, that argument, that objection is not convincing, but Paul will continue. He'll oblige them. So he says in verse 10, and not only so. He's going to give them another example. And then he gives it. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve 
the younger. So here Paul uses the example of twins, Jacob and Esau. They have the same father, Isaac. Isaac, who is the Israelite, who's the child of promise. They have the same mother this time. Not a different mother, the same mother, Rebekah. And both Isaac and Rebekah were Israelites. Not only do you have the same mother, but you have the same womb at the same time. These are twins. And, and God's, Paul says, before they were ever born. Before they had done anything, either good or bad, God chose Jacob over Esau. So the promise would go through Jacob. God's people would flow through the line of Jacob. He would send his Messiah to redeem his people through the line of Jacob. Now in Genesis 25, the full quote that Paul is referring to tells us that two nations are in your womb. Not just two individuals. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So God does have nations in mind here. His entire people not only individuals, but his sovereign choice does include individuals. So we could say this is bigger than individuals, but it includes individuals. It applies to individuals. So that's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week, we will encourage you to partake of the bread as an individual. As a reminder that yes, God does love you personally, And you are responsible to respond as a personal, as an individual. But we'll ask you to hold the cup till the end that we can all partake together. It points us to the gospel as being bigger than just you as an individual. It includes all the people of God. We are one small representation of it here. But we see that here. God says of his people, of Jacob and Esau, the older shall serve the younger. Now this is the opposite of natural order, of human choice, of tradition. We might not see it as much in our culture today. But at this time, the Jewish culture, highly steeped in primogeniture at the time, that meant everything went through the firstborn. It was everything to be that firstborn son of the family. They received everything. But now Paul says, no, the older is going to serve the younger. God's making the point crystal clear. This is my work not yours. My purpose, my choice, not yours. And then Paul closes with this quote from Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul's saying, God has chosen one for mercy and salvation, and he has chosen the other for wrath and for judgment before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or bad. Paul states this plainly. The entire chapter, and Lord willing, we'll spend the next few weeks studying chapter 9 in more detail, including next week, we come back and Paul anticipates two objections to what I'm telling you this morning. And Lord willing, we'll cover that next week. But Paul states this plainly. This entire chapter is very clear. And what it says about unconditional election and divine sovereignty. It's not so difficult to interpret or understand. But it can be a very hard pill for us to swallow, to accept. And one question we 
might want to ask ourselves as we study this is this. Will we place ourselves under the word of God? Will we submit to it? Will we recognize its authority over our lives? Or will we rebel against it and place ourselves over and above the word of God and act as if we are our own gods? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, how do we understand what this means? We must look at it in the context. So we go back to where Paul got this from, Malachi chapter 1. And if you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn there, or you can look in your worship guide in the uh, inside front cover under the reflections. We have it printed there, Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5, if you want to follow along. Let's consider that. So here's the context. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, now that's, that's a word for Esau, the nation. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So there's the the text that it comes from. And there are two ways of understanding God's hate from this passage. And before we look at those, first let me just make this point. It's important for us to know that God is not like us. Right? At the beginning, he keeps his promises. We often don't. Well, in a similar way, God is not like us. His hatred is not like ours. It's never vindictive. It's never bitter. It's never selfish. It's never malicious. God has a holy hatred, a righteous and just wrath. So remember that. He's not like us. You can't take human hatred and impose it upon God. But there's two ways for us to understand this. So first, God says of Esau, the individual, or Edom, the nation, they will be called the wicked country. So the first way to understand God's hate or his judgment is in this passive sense. God is giving them up to their own wickedness. And we saw that in Romans chapter 1. Remember, God gave them up. God gave them up to the wickedness of their own desires. Beloved, God does not bring hate. He doesn't bring his judgment on an innocent people. He doesn't bring it on an innocent or a righteous Esau or Edom. Edom, Esau was judged as wicked. They were evil. So God's hatred, his judgment, this is what they deserved. It was the righteous and just judgment of the judge of all the earth. Of the judge who has a foundation of righteousness and judgment as his throne. So when God passed over Esau and he chose Jacob before they were born, the result of that was that Esau was given up to the natural wickedness of his own heart, the desires of his own heart. And so Esau acted out that wickedness and he was accountable before God for that wickedness and he deserved the indignation and judgment of God. So that's the first way to understand it. Here's the second. The second aspect of God's hate is more active. It says they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So in the first case, some might say it was more passive. God is withholding his electing love from Esau. But remember, 
God is under no obligation to give mercy to anyone. To anyone. Of the two, he loves Jacob and he hands Esau over to wickedness. But remember, it would be perfectly just for God to do that to everyone. To hand everyone over to their wickedness. So that's the first aspect. You might say it was passive. But here now, actively, what's the result? God is angry with this wickedness forever. And when Esau is finally condemned on the day of judgment, he will not be able to say, I do not deserve this condemnation. No one will be able to say that on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, everyone's own sins will shut their mouths and their own conscience will condemn them. And Jacob on the other side, and all of us who have been freed from that condemnation forever, we will tremble with fear and wonder that we have been chosen to believe and be saved. So Jacob will say, I deserve exactly what Esau is receiving. This is what every child of God understands. It's why we cry with a thankful tongue, Lord, why was, why am I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. I wonder what stands out to you about that statement. What, if I can ask it this way, what bothers you? about that statement. You know, for most people, most of the time, what we immediately think of is probably that second half. Esau, I have hated. How, how, can, how can God say that? Esau, I have hated. He's not even born. He hasn't done anything good or bad. But what should shock us is the first half. Jacob, I have loved. Jacob, I have loved. This is... What a true understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind, our own sinfulness. If God opens our eyes and gives us just a glimpse into that reality, the other weight of his holiness, he is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if he gives us just a glimpse of the depth of our sinfulness, it would produce in us a wonder and awe, a sense of how in the world can this be that it says, Jacob, I have loved, instead of Jacob, I have hated, and Esau, I have hated. This is what it should say, what it would be perfectly just to say. Beloved Jacob and Esau both have an equal claim on God's choosing, on his mercy, on his salvation, on his love, on his blessing. Namely, no claim. And beloved, neither do we. And yet, God chose Jacob unconditionally. He said, Jacob, I loved. And this is what he says to all of you who trust in Jesus today. He said this to you. Before he makes his enemies, not only his friends, but his children. Beloved, you have been saved, not because of any of your works, 
any good that you have done, but solely due to the promise and purpose of God. Paul says, because of him who calls. So if you want to grasp the depth of God's love for you, you want to be able to rest in it, to be able to rejoice in it to the glory of God, you must begin to understand what it means to be chosen freely by God, not on the basis of anything in you. And that's hard. That's hard for us to do because don't we want to hold on to some level of credit? But aren't I such a good person, Lord? Didn't I make a good choice? It's got to be something. It's got to be something in me. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Jacob and Esau, same parents. Same womb, same time. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. Why did God choose one and not the other? Can you think of a better example Paul could have used? It is so clear. Paul states it plainly. He states it clearly in order that. Here's why. You want to know why God did it this way? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And thanks be to God that he calls. And so, beloved, God's word has not and will not fail God has kept, he is keeping, and he will always keep his promise to Israel and to us, his people today. And that promise includes this very day, all over the world, God is calling his people home. He's making people his children. So we can trust him and we can give him thanks. Everyone that God calls will be saved. And none will be saved that God does not call. You can trust this God to be faithful to his promise to continue to save his chosen children today. And beloved, it's not up to you. So we can have freedom in sharing the gospel with others. It's not up to us. Do we get the words just right? Do we have all the answers to their questions? You can't make it happen. You cannot save anyone. And yet, how does God call his children home today? Through you. Through his people, through the proclamation of the gospel, because God ordains the ends, what he's going to do, as well as the means, how he makes it happen. And he has ordained that his children would be brought into his family through his call, mediated through you. But God's the one who brings salvation. Beloved, salvation is a gift from God, and he gets to choose who he gives it to. Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? For his own glory, thanks be to God that we are the recipients of his mercy. So beloved, you who are children of God, when you reflect on what Paul is saying here, does it not lead you to give thanks to God for his wonderful gift of salvation to praise him? You know, I think that I'm pretty sure my kids gave up on the promise of the hermit crabs and the Barbie dolls Long ago, long ago, although they remind me of it every now and then. I think what they're trying to do is say, Dad, you know, you still need to make up that promise, but maybe we want something else now, you know, something instead. They probably want to raise the rate of inflation even higher than it is. 
But beloved, God is not like us. May we not give up on him. Not give up on his promises, his word. He hasn't. And he won't. He is watching over his word to fulfill it. God has the power and he has the purpose to keep every one of his promises. Here's another phrase from the scriptures, from Joshua, one place, when they enter the promised land, and Joshua tells his people, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to his people has failed. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to his people will fail. Do you trust God today? Do you thank him for his promises? Do you find hope and courage from them to live for his glory today? Let me close by sharing one of those promises with you from Psalm 27. It was adapted in our prayer preparation this morning. But here's what the psalmist says. Psalm 27. I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Beloved, that is what is coming for each and every one of you who trust in the Lord. You will look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. And in that land of the living, enjoying the goodness of the Lord, no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no despair, no discouragement, no doubt. And not one child of God will be missing. The whole family will be there in God's kingdom, enjoying God's presence forever. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.